0: Which movie? So,
1: if, if, you, uh, if you remember correctly, dear
2: listeners. <laughs> and you like
1: pina coladas. Our, and you like <clears throat> pina coladas, dear listeners. Um, during our last episode, we said that there is no film that we had already watched that we wouldn't watch again before Daredevil. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> we're here to talk about Daredevil again. Specifically, the director's cut of Daredevil. Uh, just to, to give you a brief introduction to your panelists today. Um, oh God, dude, I forgot what uh, what name I had assigned you last time. Hold on, just a second. Um, uh, let's see, Mister Daniel Watson, We we have the Stilt Man, Patrick Regan, Yo. on my digital left. Uh, we have Leapfrog, Nick Bester. <laughs> I gave you that just because I know you appreciate Brick Frog. Brick Frog. Brick Frog. And then uh, Daniel Watson Jones, who is a uh, Blackwing, who is the expert trainer of bats.
3: That's oh, why yeah, the bats are in, the, uh, in the, bat the thing. Blackwing was making a sneak attack. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I'm I'm Blackwing. Nope.
2: Yes, these names will never be used yes. again. They will not be on the test.
0: <laughs> yes, and for some reason Patrick is doodling. Uh, in the background, including what looks like a giant cat
2: head, but is apparently Daredevil, mm-hmm.
1: you the traditional, uh, the original artist's interpretation of Daredevil.
2: Do you think that we should try to call each other by our our episodic nicknames? No, I sometimes uh, forget your real name.
0: <laughs> episode. All right. Wait, what was your name again? I forget. My, Who is, is your? Blackwing? This Blackwing? is a
1: multi-person call. Batwing. Blackwing? Blackwing? What was Blackwing.
2: Blackwing. Blackwing. Are you going to make it? On, All right. Like, Blackwing. Three X and a dog. That was a Tick reference black, for anyone yeah. out
1: there. So, no, black, Blackwing, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I got nothing. Yeah. I was trying to make a black exploitation Batman
2: reference. It's probably best that you didn't.
1: Yeah. Okay. All okay. Right. So, uh, in other news, we're talking about Daredevil again.
2: Can I be Blackwing Carruthers? And Patrick can be Stiltman Carruthers? <laughs> Stiltman Carruthers! And Leapfrog Carruthers? And the Matador Carruthers? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Matador Carruthers. Yes. Okay. The Carruthers
0: yes. clan. <laughs> why did... Is that Stiltman or a Dalek behind
3: you, Patrick? It's, it's Stiltman. That's why he has long legs. Excellent.
1: Can and you write Coda Carruthers looks like or Stiltman?
3: It's entirely up to you.
1: <laughs> uh, visual aids work great on audio podcasts.
2: <laughs> yes. All right, all right. Enough
0: of this bullshit. Let's talk about Daredevil Director's Cut. Enough Carruthers. of this
1: bullshit. Let's talk about this bullshit. So... <laughs> daredevil the director's cut um we we talked a little while about if we actually wanted to do this um
3: <laughs> did any of us want to do this um, i did but i'm weird i'm glad no, that we but, did but, this i'm yeah I, glad. I, I, I am did. too I and, want to do and it.
1: the the reason that we chose to actually go through the director's cut is not only was this the Version of the film that was originally intended for theatrical release, mm-hmm. but it is in a lot of ways a fundamentally different film would, than yes. what we
2: got. I would say completely, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah there, there, there were not just—it's uh, not just a matter of dropping in a couple of scenes for uh, for fan service. It's a dramatically different film than what was released. Yes, and I think it's worth discussing uh, what those differences are, how they impacted how we viewed the film, and it, in a broader sense, what. Uh, what might have happened had this been the version of the film that had been released. I am and through that, it. I think we could understand a little bit more once we get beyond the fact that the film was cut up going into theaters, what is actually right and wrong about this film? Um, opening thoughts. Let's, uh, let's start with you, Dooch. Uh,
2: I, in, I would say about twenty minutes into this film it it had already become apparent to me that this was the true version of the film uh, uh-huh. it i i I wasn't watching it side by side with the theatrical so I couldn't remember you know specifically where and how much voiceover there was in the theatrical cut but it uh-huh. felt to me like there was significantly less in it, it within the first yeah. twenty minutes uh, and then throughout the film i uh, i <laughs> I guess the easiest way to the best way to put it is that while watching this film, at no point did I want to vomit.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Which is an improvement.
3: Yes. Uh, Although, good people around if you have food poisoning. Mm. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I would say I'm not entirely sure that it necessarily rises to the level of a great film now, but it's definitely a decent or even a good film uh, in this form. Uh, a couple things I noticed was I felt like I had a much better sense of sort of how. Um, Matt Murdock sees and experiences the world in this uh, movie like we talked about uh, last time how sort of outside of that sequence where you see him sort of getting ready for the day there's not really any sense after that scene that he actually is a blind man mm-hmm. uh, and you have sequences that sort of I think do a bit jo- better job of sort of showing how, how it is that he's experiencing the world and there's just more interactions with uh, his friend John Favreau's character Froggy Frog. Foggy, foggy, excuse me. Um, And it sort of, I think, really fleshes out their relationship. Uh, And you get a lot more of him as a lawyer, and I think that helps quite a bit. Um, And one of my favorite... uh, This is actually one of the things that is cut out of the movie from the director's cut. Uh, They take out the love scene between uh, Daredevil and Elektra, Uh which I think uh, strengthens that scene. Because as it plays out in the original version... They're on the they're on the rooftop with the stupid rain effect, uh, and Daredevil hears some people in need of help, and Elektra talks him into staying, and they have stupid the room sex. (laughs) Um, But in this version, in in this version, he actually goes and saves the day. He helps he helps stop a uh, a crime in progress, and I think it sort of gives a better sense of sort of the self sacrifice that he has to do. He's not just this. This jerk who decided to bang the hot chick rather than save the day—he had to
3: go off and do mm-hmm. something. Patrick, opening thoughts. I—I I was the only person who had come into this having watched the director's cut. I actually bought the director's cut DVD. Who,
1: who, who came into the initial view?
3: Yes, thank of you. The, film. Uh, the initial? No, I was the only person who actually watched the movie. That's yeah, the, uh, that's all. <laughs> it always happens here. We—we <laughs> we are the director. <laughs> I have no idea. Um,
1: we I, s- we soda Just a guessing.
3: I, you know, I I I had mentioned in the last podcast that I had this weird emotional connection to Daredevil, um, and that's why I bought the director's cut in the first place. And watching the director's cut again, I was reminded partially why, because I don't know why I bought the director's cut in the first place. It was a long time ago, but watching, I primarily watched the director's cut since then, and so I mostly remembered the director's cut as a movie as opposed to the theatrical cut. It's very odd, the, the differences. They are fundamentally different movies. One's PG-13, one's R. The priest, who knows Daredevil's secret in the theatrical cut, does not learn that he's Daredevil until, I would say, about the third act of the movie,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, which is a pretty mm-hmm. significant change. Uh, ben Yurk is running around doing a lot more investigative journalism. You can follow how the kingpin gets outed. The priest... Plot is mm-hmm. much stronger and much feels much more firm, and mm-hmm. the editing is a lot is a lot better. The things don't jump around quite as oh, badly. They still have the, but the thing is, is that a lot of the a lot of things that gave the original movie problems, such as the bad CGI and yeah. the really weird flying transitions, they're still there. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, they're more tolerable now because the plot. There's a plot that makes a lot of sense. It's a much darker. Story I think The theatrical cut At one point Matt gets into a car With a guy Blind Now 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 Patrick Patrick
1: We have to stop there Because that scene alone Is going to warrant A considerable amount Of
3: discussion later That is true I'll I'll stop there But I will say It is a much darker story And one of the things I wonder We may talk about this later Is that I was trying To piece together Some of the changes And some of the scenes That were shot For the theatrical cut Versus for the director's cut and they don't quite add up Mm-mm. insofar as specifically the priest. The priest was the one that really caught me. Is that yeah, yeah. There, there's no way all those scenes can string together to make a coherent storyline. So at some point they they had to reshoot or they got new marching orders halfway through filming.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, there, are, there are a number of, it's not just a matter of adding scenes. There were scenes removed.
3: Exactly, the because they were contradict. It would have been contradictory had they all been in place. Wait a minute. Are you saying that mm-hmm.
2: um, that there were scenes removed from the theatrical cut to make the director's cut? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had been assuming yeah. that the the director's cut was the original intended cut of the film, and mm-hmm. then they when they changed it and said it needs to be PG-13, then. Uh, then the theatrical cut was produced. So I was it thinking was, of the dire- director's cut yep. as the first.
1: I I, th- I think it was, and then I think what Patrick is saying is it seems like there were reshoots that were done okay, to fill yeah, in yeah. gaps. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, there were scenes that had to be put okay. in. So, like, the scene that we're not talking about yet but that we'll get to, there's crucial plot information in that mm-hmm. scene mm-hmm. that they then have to shoot a new scene to contrive a reason that Matt okay. knows this.
3: Gotcha. So, and they'd, like, be... That they were so intent on getting this down, they didn't just recut it. They mm-hmm. went back and reshot it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. So I,
1: I think everything that each of you has said is true and I agree with. For me, there were three things that really came through more strongly in this film uh, one was the plot. Uh, as we talked about before, the, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> joking. yeah. There, there was an actual plot <laughs> yes. that crossed Matt's life as a lawyer and as Daredevil. Um, I, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't classify it as a particularly strong plot. It was fairly by numbers, mm-hmm. but it was there and it provided a backbone to the film that it was lacking in the theatrical mm-hmm. cut. That's mm-hmm. one. Um, Two, I think that you get a much stronger sense of Matt's internal journey and what the yes. progression that he has to go through is and what the real challenge that he faces is in the film. And three, tied mm-hmm. in with that, I think you get a much stronger sense of not just that the relationship with Elektra is important to him, but why that relationship is important to him. And yeah. what what I think it comes together to be in the end is, you know, again, n- not, as you said, Nick, not a great film, necessarily. Maybe not even a good film, because there still are some glaring problems. Mm-hmm. But a uh, a flawed film rather than a bad film. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, Nooch?
2: Oh, uh, I... As with most things that I watch, my expectations certainly affected uh, the the mood that I was in as I was watching it, my opinion of it, throughout. Uh, and I think because <laughs> I had watched the theatrical cut twice and had disliked it even more ten years later, the second time, uh, I really felt like this was a good film. But, yeah. again, I was, for at least one of the acts, I was only sort of half-watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't I didn't feel the need to turn it off constantly. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: So, so let's um, let's kind of hit these points one at a time. First of all, before we begin, though, I finally figured out who's uh, who the priest, his relative version is. Because like, we established in the last one, the priest is the poor man's someone. I finally figured out he's the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs>
2: mm, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yep. I can give, I'll give that okay. to you.
1: Um, Does so Mitty and the first... Stanton
2: not enter the Marvel universe until Avengers? I think I so. I
1: can't remember him in anything. I don't think okay. so. For that,
2: I
3: yeah. was curious. Um,
1: which is, you know, statistically, he should have appeared in a Marvel film before the so.
3: Avengers. <laughs> yeah, because he have...
0: has M. M. Walsh made it
3: into I don't one think yet. I don't
1: so. so, I
2: don't yeah. know who that is. There's he a... was. Uh, There's a game uh, called he.
1: What he was the he was uh, Captain Brian in Blade Runner,
0: and yeah. the. He's the bad guy in
1: Blood Simple. Blood Simple. I
2: have not seen Blood Simple. Um, oh, and seen, he was okay, uh,
1: he was Nicholas up. Cage's uh, co-worker in Raising Arizona.
2: I've seen Raising Arizona once, and it was more than ten years ago. We it's, could probably figure out what his okay. Marvel universe. I, I, I just looked up his photo. So you would
0: almost you would almost certainly recognize the yeah. Emmett Walsh. If you saw yeah. apparently him. he was He's in the jerk as well. Yeah.
1: How dare you not have sure <laughs> a picture of Emmett M. Walsh on your wall?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I do.
1: Yep. So if we're <laughs> good. If we're going through and hitting kind of the, the points of change and things that are different, um, you know, we, we have a plot in this film and we discover the plot with the help of a special guest star.
3: Coolio. <laughs> special guest star
1: Coolio, star of Batman and Robin uh, and Leprechaun in the Hood.
3: Any thoughts on Coolio? I mean, he's stunt casting.
0: The Coolio plot's... Oh, yeah. it's stunt casting, absolutely. But I mean, the that that plot line really does add a lot yeah. to it. I mean, there's there's a lot of breadcrumbs that are established early on that very significantly lead to how Wilson Fisk is caught uh, and is outed as the uh, outed as the kingpin. Uh, the kingpin. And just even sort of establishing this early on as being kind of a mystery, you get a bit of a pass for like. Back, backloading some of the plot details right there. So, like, right away you sort of know, okay, we're going to figure out the plot mm-hmm. later. But as there's no sort of mystery element in the first movie, the lack of the plot appearing initially seems much more fair. So, so do, does
1: it, Does anyone want to summarize, um, briefly kind of the Coolio plot?
3: I'll do it. Okay. Uh, so, briefly, yeah. it, uh, Matt and Foggy are given Coolio as a uh, defendant, a client. Um, I should add that... Although we really, all of us did enjoy the the new trial stuff they did, uh, mm-hmm. it's the lawyering. Exactly what kind of lawyer they are is still super vague.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we, we yeah. don't really. They, they seem to be functioning yes. as defense lawyers it's, here.
3: It, it's what I call comic book the, lawyering. Like I'm currently reading the She-Hulk run, and do you know what kind of lawyer <laughs> she does? She does uh, lawyering, she's law. does lawyering. Yeah, she does law. And yeah. I should add, it's one of the great. It's a really great run, but it's still law. It's, anyway. Yeah. Plus, is that right next we also to, get to see the, uh, the see science building? At, uh,
2: is the law building right next to the science building? At, at Columbia. Yeah, yes. Columbia. Yes. <laughs> where Spider-Man goes.
3: My, back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> they Sorry. take Julio on as a client. He is currently charged with the murder of a prostitute. I think Lisa, Lisa Tazio. I, thank you, Lisa Tazio. Daredevil decides to take him on because he knows that Julio is innocent because, they because call, he hears the heartbeat. Yeah, he hears a heartbeat, which they call back. To, they call back to from the first scene, which they actually use a lot more. They play a lot more with the heartbeat thing. They yes. break into Lisa Tazio's apartment, and in actually a scene I really enjoyed, where we get to see Foggy and Matt being kind of detectives, and we actually mm-hmm. get to see yeah. the non-combat applications of Daredevil's powers. It's not just he's good at punching; he's really good at investigating because he can feel the indentation from a ballpoint pin in a desk, which is kind of cool. Although, for the record, guns don't use cordite anymore. That is, like, one of the most famous movie incorrections. Um, I didn't know that. Yes, so anytime anyone says they smell cordite, it's not true. Guns what Which it's cordite a really anymore. old gun? It's true. For all we know, he was shooting with a uh, yeah. six, you know, a uh, cold single-action army. <laughs> <laughs> he could be. He was a very fancy, a very fancy man. man. The man that we what will eventually learn Civil War replications. <laughs> replicas. Oh. Maybe he's secretly a supervillain with a civil war replication theme.
1: Maybe he he's rides civil around war, in a man. haunted tank.
3: <laughs> yes, though. Thank you, Stephen. Yes. There we go. It is, I am sad that we're not doing uh we can't do uh
1: the Haunted Jonah. Tank. I wish you say
3: Jonah Hex because I have Civil uh, War related stories related to Jonah Hex and real stories. <laughs> yes, sure. but um, so so Coolio is accused
1: of murdering Lisa Tasio. He's being held. He's on trial.
3: So they they go into the court scene yes. and there's some pretty good stuff with Matt, not just as showing him as a lawyer. But also showing how they, he and Foggy, use the fact that Matt is blind to Play up him
1: being blind <laughs> like, at
3: all. My favorite, it's a great conversation where they sit down and they're, and they're arguing over whether or not they played it up too much or not enough. And he's like, you know, you always want to do the chair thing. The chair thing's embarrassing. I hate doing the chair thing. Um, which I really loved like that it just seemed like such a realistic conversation for someone yeah. who is blind to have to be like, you know what I am blind I'm going to use it Yeah, work? particularly
2: with like one of his oldest friends and yeah like you know, so- someone partner.
3: who he, foggy has has been Matt's friend for so long he kind of has the right to do this sort of thing and I mm-hmm. really it felt it showed mm-hmm. a depth of that relationship to say no these two have known each other for a long.
1: So they're defending Coolio. Yes. We know
3: Coolio didn't do it. But there's, and a, there's a cop that gets on, put on the stand. He He's directly asked, I don't remember the exact question he gets asked, but somehow he basically said, flat out says, I saw him do it or something similar yep. to that. He says he and, found him with the gun in his hand. Right. Uh, Thank you. That's it. Yeah. But yes. his heart keeps beating normally. And this throws a big winch into everything because <gasps> if his heartbeat's not changing, if none of the tells that normal human beings have, He's telling the truth, and this actually. Can can
1: I mm -hmm. can I ask a question real quick? Sure. Who was that character actor playing that cop? Because I have seen him in a million things before. He plays cops a lot. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say he he looks like a guy who has played corrupt cops. He's on Cops. (laughs) Um, I'm going to look it up. Keep keep talking.
3: Okay. Uh, over the course of the plot. Uh, at, right after the funeral, Ben Yurik approaches uh, Matt, and rather than kind of give Matt the lecture-is-going-to-die spiel, which is probably one of the reshirts, instead he actually wants to talk to Matt about his client, which I assume is why he approached them at the party to begin with. Mm-hmm. And he reveals that Lisa Tazio is mm-hmm. an informant of his, giving him information about the kingpin that she was getting from pillow talk from a client, uh, which explains why she was killed. She knew too much and had to be silenced. He then points out that this cop Just bought a brand new Mercedes. Three years of a cop salary. And that's when Matt goes to check out this cop. And we get to the scene I was about to reference to earlier. Where Matt ambushes him. Not as Daredevil. But as Matt Murdock. Throws him into his car. Gets behind the wheel of a car. Remember? Matt's blind. Mm -hmm. And starts driving the car around (laughs) in the parking lot. Smashing into things. Essentially to freak the guy out. Doing a full on Batman interrogation. And he gets he at some he just gets pushed at the point where he's like, Why doesn't your heartbeat change? And we discover mm-hmm. he's got a pacemaker.
2: Dun 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 I, dun,
1: dun, dun dun dun. So dun, dun. uh to, to to answer the question I just asked, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh this guy who plays the corrupt cop, his name is uh Jude I'm gonna mispronounce his name, Jude's, uh Sicalella. He played okay. the he played David Palmer's chief of staff on twenty four for
2: four seasons. Um Ooh, While we're talking okay. about, uh, <laughs> I I looked at M Emmett at Walsh's uh, filmography on Wikipedia. And Long isn't it? Yes, yes, he's been in a lot, and between the current day yes. all the way back to Blade Runner in 1982, he has mm-hmm. been in four things that I have watched. One of which is an animated film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was in what animated film was uh, the Iron in? Giant. Oh. oh, okay. Uh, but oh, the, the, the other three things happened. are A uh, Time to Kill, uh, The Raven with John Cusack, and uh, he played Arthur Dales in The X Files in the uh, flashback episode, The okay. Unnatural, yes. the baseball one. That is a great episode. Yes,
0: he was one of the two Arthur yes. Dales
3: for that was some a great, reason. A bit, that
2: was I'll never understand that. We
0: uh,
3: there was through. a reason, but we don't uh, want to get into it here. I'll tell yeah, you after so. we just stop recording. Yeah, so yeah. do go on. Hey. Sorry. The At which point. The guy, who's at this point fairly shaken, reveals to Matt that if he, it doesn't matter if he puts him behind bars. There's a hundred more corrupt cops where he came from, mm-hmm. which is a very Hydra thing to say, but that's either here mm-hmm. or there. And I which like is her. when he <laughs> reveals to Matt that the key piece of information, the kingpin doesn't just kill you. He kills your family.
1: And two, two points on this. Mm-hmm. Number one... Um, This is a great example of the director's cut not only adding content, but taking it away. Remove this scene, remove this plot line, and Matt has no reason at any point to suspect that the Kingpin is going to target Electra. And this cop tells him this quite explicitly in in the scene. In the theatrical cut, this plot is filled by doing a couple things. First of all, the scene where Ben Urich discovers that Matt is Daredevil, the Kevin Smith scene, is moved to an earlier point in the film. And then Ben Urich goes to Matt on the street out of nowhere and says, yeah, you might want to watch out for Electra. She's in trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a very out-of-place scene. Yeah. He just, like, literally, he's just walking down the street, and Ben Urich shows up and yells this exposition at
3: him yeah. and runs away. So well, which the... to be fair, it's something okay. Joey Pants does all the time. It happened That's to me true. just the other day. <laughs> Joe Pantoliano <laughs>
1: ran,
2: ran out of a building and said, Patrick! Patrick! You
0: better protect
1: Electra! You know, I mean, it
2: was weird. <laughs> it fit with when Jennifer, when Electra uh, did the, essentially the same thing to Matt Murdock at a different point in the theatrical cut, and I guess the director's cut, when she just finds him on the street. Although mm-hmm. she says earlier in
1: the film... Yeah, and she will find him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she tells Matt that she'll find him. Yeah, And mm-hmm. Okay, so this comes at the end of the playground scene, which is extended slightly. In that little extension, we find out, through action, that Matt knows who her father is. He knows who Nicholas Nachios is. He picks up quickly that she's being guarded or followed, and she's trying to shake her guards. And she tells him that she'll find him. So suddenly, the A, her coming back, has a different context. B, his knowledge of who... She is has a different context, and we lose all of that in the theatrical cut.
3: we also lose one of my favorite bits is when he how he checks his watch it's such a small yeah, little thing,, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I never thought of how that's how blind people check their watches for those of you who didn't watch it. He flips up the glass on his watch and it's it's a non digital watch it's analog, and he feels the timepieces and when yeah, I thought about, I was like, of course, that's how blind people would tell the time
2: the I, other um Sorry, go ahead. I've known one blind person who had a watch, and it was just a talking watch. Although I guess that would probably be yeah, I think talking irritating watches. for you know yeah. other people around the blind person. Yes. Probably um, not good for someone who yeah. needs to be quiet at any point. <laughs> you could
0: probably you could probably also do some sort of like braille thing. I could imagine like oh, a digital clock cool. that like, like pokes the, up uh, little uh, whole, the dots in a different like pattern. Like the screen that Whistler that uses in
3: sneakers. Yes. But. Yes. Yes, but continuing on the the plot, yeah, yeah. is not quite resolved yet. Um, mm. We then actually cut to no. Foggy, who is the one who breaks this open. Who's being useful? He's super useful in this version. He is sitting. He's not just a douche who puts mustard in in uh, his friend's coffee. He, he's the one
0: who figures out a clue. He still is that douche, well, but he's other things he, as well. He
1: figures out who did it, but Ellen Pompeo helps him figure yes.
0: it out. Uh, Gets the assist from
3: Ellen Pompey. Yeah, they they figure out the clue that they were looking at they were looking at incorrectly, and then it points to Wesley Owen Welch, the Kingpin's assistant.
1: That oddly high build, inexplicably useless side character from the original cut of the film.
3: And now you know why. He's in a lot more. Suddenly of the has a point. Yeah. And
0: Played by Leland at something.
3: At this point, this is when, the, this. it's at this point that Yurik actually discovers Daredevil in the director's cut. He discovers Daredevil's mm-hmm. identity and gets a call from Foggy, which is what actually sets it off. And a little mm-hmm. bit later, Foggy basically just goes to the cop, the the good cop, yep. reveals the Wesley. Goes to the, cop. Wesley go, uh, the cop goes to Wesley and mm-hmm. basically shakes him down.
1: And that's why the cops actually come for the
0: the end
3: because they have actual testimony and yes. evidence that he's the kingpin, as opposed to just sort of psychically knowing it. Yeah. Magic movie they knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They now, were watching now, the film while it was happening, Magic too.
1: movie knowledge! The thing that I actually really like, in addition to the fact that this is a plot, <laughs> the thing that I like most about this is that it ties in very deeply with the character arc that Matt goes through over the course of the film. Uh, what we didn't mention is so we have the scene we have we still have that terrible club fight at the beginning of the film where uh
0: matt chases the rapist down but it's much better now because in the previous version it just seemed like a kind of seedy club now it's very clear that this is a club populated by other and it is
1: the club where the rapist committed the rape
0: Oh. Yeah, exactly. There's gotcha. a lot more context to this club <laughs> mm-hmm. than it was in the original, where it's essentially just some random nightclub with some, you know, kind of burly looking guys who happen to have guns on them that are entirely murdered by Daredevil. He chase, chases
1: the guy down. Scene ends, and Matt goes back to his apartment, and we see him, you know, pulling his tooth out in the shower and you know, taking his pain medication and all of that. And then he goes to get in the sensory deprivation tank. And when he gets in. He stops for a minute because he hears another crime, and he choo- there's a very stylish sequence where he sees the crime playing out around him, mm-hmm. and he chooses mm-hmm. to ignore it and puts himself in the sensory deprivation tank. The crime he mm-hmm. ignores is the murder of Lisa Tessio.
2: Yes, yes. and in his defense, he uh, was in extreme yeah, pain and have, was just about to go to bed. <laughs> but
1: what, 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 what it plays into, though, yes. is, is the journey that we actually see, Matt, going on in this film. In the original version of the film, it felt a lot like Matt's... The journey Matt goes on is him saying, I'm not the bad guy. And then later he doesn't kill a guy after doing terrible, terrible things and uses that to justify him not being a bad guy. Right. The journey that he goes on in this version is Matt has been, since his father was murdered, almost completely emotionally isolated from the
3: rest of the world. In this version, he doesn't even have the priest who he unburdens himself on. He's got nobody.
1: There's... And he—I mean, it, this is played up in the the elements around him. I mean, he he is in a sensory deprivation tank, and he used that to cut himself off from the world. Foggy tells him in their first uh, one of their first scenes together that he he needs to connect with people. He needs to get out there. There's a scene with the priest in the church where the priest tells him that you know you you don't come here for the quiet. You come here for the solitude, and encourages him to connect with the community in the church. The Matt's entire process at that point becomes that solitude that he's built for himself. And the reason the relationship with Electra is important then is it's him starting to break that down. Because he finds someone who mm-hmm. is as hurt and is as damaged as him.
2: And as capable.
1: And yeah. as capable. And and you, Nick, you, you brought this up. They don't have the The Room sex scene together. Mm-hmm.
0: Remo- they remo- don't. He goes off and saves that person. Because
1: he's not yet able to... To break down that wall of isolation He's still dealing with that yeah. So he gets to that point where he's cu- Getting ready to come out of his shell And then he loses that
0: mm-hmm. Yeah I, th- I felt like the His repeated uh, utterance of I'm not the bad guy It hits a lot harder in this yeah. movie like Because you can definitely see How he would be the bad guy In the director's yeah. cut Whereas that's less obvious in Uh in the I mean, And the especially, theatrical version. especially
1: with, I'm, I'm sorry, especially without the sex scene, because he goes immediately from leaving Electra on the rooftop to beating up that guy in front of the guy's kid. So what's going yeah. on in his head then is he's abandoned a human connection to beat up a man in front of his child. That's <laughs> who why hasn't that, done that I'm not yep. a bad guy moment feels so strong to him. Right. And again, all of yeah. that completely lost in the theatrical cut.
0: And they then, have a, they then have a shot after that, which maybe was in the theatrical cut. Is this, the, the, After he says that to the kid, there's then a shot where he's like on a rooftop being all broody, and he says it again. Was that yes. in the uh, theatrical yes, version or not? It was. It was? Okay. There there were, a, there were a lot of things where it was like short little scenes of like five seconds where I was like, was that in the original <laughs> or not? Just because I couldn't remember them.
2: The word I so think sad. the use of the word I, um, original is really throwing me off because I am thinking of the, act, the directors cut yeah, this, as the original yeah. but right. so the yeah, director okay yeah. let's yeah. do that
3: I, I would also okay. add that having this this plot where he's he's defending the innocent person I think it also helps add two thing other things that we haven't talked about the first is it, it reinforces the idea that he's also a defender of the innocent mm-hmm. like you know he isn't just vengeance he is yep. you know you you have you did no wrong therefore I am going to defend you but the other thing it does is that it gives him. It gives him one of the things we talked about is that he really didn't seem to have much of a goal in the first in the theatrical cut, uh-huh. and in the director's cut, obviously mm-hmm. he also has the, the emotional journey, but he also has an, an active, ongoing thing he's trying to do. He's trying to save this man, so yeah. even when we see him, it's not he doesn't feel aimless. He's got something he's actively pursuing and working towards, and that helps us give a sense of momentum yeah. to. The film that it didn't really have in the director's cut, it was just sort of wandering. Now we're we're working on a thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Um, let's see here. I'm trying to see other things that I've got in my notes. I, I, I also thought that having a, one of the things that gets established early about Electra here, in addition to her being protected by these bodyguards and and not really wanting that. Is that she saw her mother die in front of her when she was five years old? Yeah. She saw that happen. So we establish her kind of being damaged and also having that trouble connecting. When her father dies, then it makes more sense to me that it makes more sense why she is a dick to Matt
2: at that. Yeah, point. yeah.
1: Because she, she, the lesson that she has just learned is don't get no close matter to how them. she's yeah don't get close to people. She, she,
0: yeah.
1: Whereas in the theatrical cup because we don't have that crucial piece of context, we don't know anything about her background. She's just kind of being a dick to him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but he's also being a dick. Well, to he her, usually he is. Lay off, yes. buddy.
3: Lay off, buddy. They're, they're both being dicks, but it's it is a the dickishness yes. comes along. Also, his dickishness has more of a context too, because his from his perspective, he's like, "You're the first thing I've ever had. I can't let go of that." So while they're both yeah. not necessarily behaving well. The context given both by her mother's death and by his new emotional isolation makes their behavior in the graveyard make way more sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I guess I, I've got a couple more things I want to cover on one side of the film, and then we're going to go to another side of the film.
3: Intriguing.
0: Um, oh, man. I got a side of the film I want to talk about, though. <laughs> so maybe a
1: third side of the film. Um, or a possible what, what side. so with this film. I, I, I liked. I liked a couple things decking, he drunk. Um, toward toward the end of the film.
0: That's the shape I was thinking of. I know. I <gasps> what shape am I thinking of now? Uh, uh, 17 bears lines. in a house. That's not a shape, oh. you idiot. It was a oh,
2: pentagon. Sorry, I, I heard you say, what am I thinking of now? <laughs> oh. So,
0: it was a
1: shape. Um, toward the end of the film, the kingpin's been vanquished. <laughs> Uh, th- there is that scene where Matt is back in the coffee shop with Foggy. Foggy asks Matt if he wants to talk about what he's gone through. And Matt again says no. He's still still dealing with his emotional uh, isolation. And he leaves. But instead of seeing a sad montage where Matt wanders through the streets of New York looking lonely, uh, he goes back to the church. And the the priest mm-hmm. is there and the priest kind of because church is just being let out. It's a Sunday. The priest nods at him and says, well, maybe we'll see you next week. And you you get a sense at that point that, Matt, he's not quite opened up, but he's getting to the point where opening up is more of a possibility to him. Mm -hmm. And I I thought that that was nice. Um,
3: He also... They also have a scene where, right after that, where Ben York more or less walks up to him and says, I know you're a daredevil, and I'm going to print it. Which... Then gives much a much more interesting credence to his what he said to to Matt, both Matt Matt's monologue about you know people can surprise you and you can you, you can trust them, and the fact and you know Ben York kind of like salute to Matt right before he leaves because it, that, for Matt actually that is that is a that is an evidence to Matt that you can trust some people because yep. Ben York is he basically I have the most power I could crush you, I have decided right. not to, you are safe. So, weirdly, Joe so, Pantaleone becomes sort of mm-hmm. the savior for Matt. Yeah.
1: So, we've talked about this side of the film. We've talked about how Matt's journey is strengthened. We've talked about how the plot is much stronger. Um, but some weaknesses still remain. So, Nick, what did you think about the extra bullseye scenes? <laughs>
0: That's exactly the <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about. Goddamn fucking extra bullseye scenes. All right. Well, the major one is Daredevil going through security at, I guess Heathrow Airport. It's an airport bullseye somewhere are going in Europe, some wherever he's flying to. Uh, and he spends the entire time sort of strutting around in his in his like black leather duster, uh, and he goes through security. He puts in uh, through the uh, scanner. Uh, like a toothpick and a pen, and that's, and like maybe one or two other things that he could use to throw at people to kill them because that's his stupid power. Uh, and he and he walks through, and a metal detector goes off, and the guy wands him over, and he gets to his mouth, and it starts beeping. And Bullseye reveals that for some reason he is smuggling a paperclip in his mouth through security, which, first of all, I'm not 100% certain that a paperclip would paperclip would even set off a metal detector. Second of all, I'm pretty sure you can take a paperclip on an airplane. I, I don't think you need to be all kind about it. I don't think that that's it. what's
2: happening. I, think I don't that, think so either. Uh, I thought it's he not, was first regurgitating all, it's, it's it not, from, from his throat, and I assume that he always has it there, whether to pick handcuffs or to kill someone with. I I actually, and, and
0: for, for, for reference, that, it's, it's not... And he it's, then reveals that he has another I don't, I don't, one I I don't it think, think it's a paperclip.
2: I think it's a safety pin.
1: Uh, I
0: thought it was a paperclip.
2: I don't know. Was a safety I'm pretty sure it was a anyway. paperclip. Patrick, what were you trying well, to you say?
0: Well, he he had already revealed that he uses paperclips because yeah. he killed the guy in the bar with right. paperclips. Uh, Regardless, uh, and for some reason, this guy revealing that he has a paperclip hide- hidden in his mouth sets off no no red flags for the security. Nobody says, "Oh, well, let's investigate
3: this guy." They just go, "Oh, he's got a paperclip
0: oh, in his mouth." I'm All right, theory. he's one of those punks. And then in front of another security guard, he reveals that he had another I have, paperclip I have clip a in there. About
3: this. I think I know why this scene was okay. in there, I, uh-huh. but here's why I don't think it needed to be. I think okay. the scene is in there because he also ha- he actually is, he has actual weapons on him. hes He's got the belt buckle with the weapons on it. I think he walked <laughs> through with a paperclip in his mouth so that they'd see the paperclip and just assume he was fucking with them and not check the belt buckle. The reason I don't think it needs to be there was because, I don't know about any of you, I really wasn't wondering how Bullseye got all his crap through the airport because... We don't did care. not care. It's, it's no. an irrelevant huh. piece of information, and, and, and his his yeah. his, his, ver,
1: his defining characteristic, as we see with the peanuts and the paperclip, is yeah. anything in his hand can be a weapon. Right. So why does he need to bring weapons with him? He doesn't. And
2: again, I did not. Yeah, his bizarre shoddy can belt. I did not uh, believe that this was specifically a weapon for him. That I, I assumed that it was also for picking handcuffs or anything that he might. He, the point is that he's very handy. Like he can, mm. you know he can turn anything into a tool and that he just always had an emergency tool.
3: He can fix there a drain. From, he can there, build a
2: bookshelf. I, I did not have any problem with this scene. Uh, and although I do find it rather surprising that Nick Bester noted fan of Colin Farrell as bullseye found an additional scene of bullseye to be irritating and useless.
0: <laughs> oh my God. If there had been a way to cut, recut this movie, so bullseye was not in it, which I don't think I don't is know. possible, but if there were a way to do that, I would be so happy. I don't happy. understand like, that at literally all. If, literally, if, <laughs> literally, if like he had just shown up as a guy who threw uh, Bull's uh, Daredevil's stick at uh, Electra's father and killed him and never showed up in any other scene, I would be happy. Well,
2: what this speaks to—I'm sorry, dude, go ahead. Uh, the, as I'm watching this superhero film, I have to say that— I found the things that Bullseye did to be significantly more compelling from, like, a superpower perspective than anything that Daredevil does. Like, it's impressive what Daredevil does, but he's he's an acrobat, he's a blind man who can see, okay? I feel like that's fairly simple. I've I've never seen another superhero that is, is as absurdly, like, but almost humanly super powerful in this particular way. Like Batman Inexplicably is, a is the right dude word. does a lot of really impressive stuff, but so yeah. is Bullseye. Uh,
0: he, yeah, yeah. And I'm and I know almost nothing about Bullseye as a comic I've, character, and maybe yeah, I've I never would seen love his characterization else, there. So.
1: But you hate Colin Farrell, that's it, it?
0: Yeah, it, it's really Colin Farrell's approach to it. It's not anything about his powers. It's the sort of preening, peacocking. Uh, he made me well, miss he, he, bullshit he, that I just really, really find. Here's conscious. the thing, okay. and th-
1: this is this is what I see as when we talk about what were the actual flaws in this film. You know, e- director's cut, theatrical cut, whatever. What were the real flaws? Um, the villain side of the equation in this film is still
3: incredibly weak. Which throughout. is weird. It, yeah. It's it, I, just to comment on that. It's part of it's because they they feel oh, we have two villains. I mean, I guess you could count Wesley as a third villain, but I don't. Nah. Uh, you have he's a have, he's a goon. You have Kingpin and you have Bullseye. The problem is that Kingpin and Bullseye, first of all, they don't get a lot of development. Kingpin in particular nope. doesn't get doesn't get enough do. <laughs>
1: Uh, although uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, my favorite addition to the theatrical cu- or to the director's cut of the film had to do with the Kingpin. It was in the Kingpin's first scene. Oh yes, when he we establish immediately that he is a physical threat. Mm-hmm. He throws away his cigar, yep. which is why he's lighting a cigar in the next scene. Yes, and he kills two of his henchmen. And the way that he kills them is he. Smacks one of them and kills them just with a punch. Picks up the other one by his throat. And lets out the Michael Clark Duncaniest scream in all Michael <laughs> Clark duncan screams history.
2: <laughs> oh, Michael, and then snaps the so
1: guy's much. neck. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is perfect. Peace? I had to pause the film for about two minutes because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> At that point, I, I was yes. like,
0: Re- the rewatch was worth it. It was perfect. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that scene is fantastic. And the uh, the guy being strangled has a fantastic look on his face as well. That's a, that was also part of my, my enjoyment <laughs> of that I've done, man.
2: I really enjoyed the fact that, that there wasn't that stupid cigar continuity error. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: know, know why that, that seemed so it.
2: annoying to me in the theatrical cut, but it, uh, it really bothered me. And in this one, I was like, oh, yes, clearly it makes sense now. now. It
0: all—it all, all, right all makes sense.
3: <laughs> but to to kind of get back to the, yeah, yeah. the idea is that first of all, they're just very different. Kingpin is, aside from that one that one murder, he's very reserved, mm-hmm. and he's he's very calm. And you know, you want your bad guys to have some to have to diverge. You don't want them to be you don't you don't want them both running around cackling like lunatics, be, or yeah. both be super reserved because that just mm-hmm. gets monotonous. But they're on such different planes; they're kind of in different movies. And I, I like Michael yes. Clark Duncan. I actually think he made a really good kingpin. And this is actually for for trivia purposes. Uh, this is the pre Idris Elba as Heimdall uh, racist wine fest when he was cast as the kingpin.
1: Okay. Okay. So so uh, on that point, was this the first instance of a black actor being cast in a major role in a comic book film? Um, Besides as a white Blade? character. Besides Blade, yeah. <laughs> Besides Blade. <laughs> as, as a character Who's originally white? Um. As a character, was originally white. It's the first one okay. I can think of. Well, Blade was originally white.
2: <laughs> Just for the I, record, he was absolutely was not correct. He was definitively okay. not. Yeah. He was, I, he was, I don't know as much about the was, origins, but I always got the impression it, it, that he was yeah, he, one of the he, first he badass quote, black like, superheroes. He
3: was. He had a oh, power yeah. afro. He had Bronze Tiger and Luke Cage's power afro. They all awesome. three had the same power afro. Um...
0: I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine anything other than Wesley Snipes is, like, very intricately shaved. Uh, I believe cafe.
1: that he, he had an afro, he had a headband, he had sunglasses, and I believe a bright yellow loot cage shirt as
3: well. The uh, 70s were an interesting time if, for comic books, and we could do a podcast on it himself. So but, I, back to right, this being anyway. the Kingpin being black. Um, hold on a second, Patrick. I, what
2: you just said, uh, I want to relate back to uh, what Bester's problem with... Uh, with Bullseye, and I think you said it very well that they, the two villains, play off of each other very well because they they uh, are almost opposites. In that, They're Kingpin is a different. sort of silent strength character, who mm-hmm. or silent strong character, who clearly he grew up in Hell's Kitch- Kitchen, as it's established. I don't know then or later. He grew up uh, in the Bronx. No, he, broke, he grew up in the, the Bronx. Bronx. He wouldn't understand. He, wouldn't understand. Uh, he he grew up on the streets, and but he's risen to the top of the business world, obviously through. Strength and self control. Through controlling uh, so it, it the city's water supply, right? To, yeah. It, it makes sense for him I to really have both what of this those Corp character did. traits. And it also makes sense to me for Bullseye to be so uh, preening as uh, I don't remember whether Patrick or Nick you put it that way, but I thought uh, that. That if your power is that you have perfect aim, that is not something that you're going to use silently to, to rise to the top of anything. Like, that is something that. That you use to impress people and make them afraid, so it would make you cocky. Like you would want to be showing that off all the time. Uh, so, okay.
0: it, he could use it to rise to the top <laughs> of the well, dark. That's, that's world. actually the what point. Is
2: that we meet. Rule it with an iron we meet fist. Him, it,
3: he's showing off in yeah. a bar. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: So he's. Uh, I mean, I think, cocky Skill versus silence. Frankly, the, I guess. Anyway, go on.
0: I mean, I think the idea that they play off of each other would work better if they had more than one scene together the fact the fact that they i mean patrick described them as being in different Mm -hmm. movies and it would not be hard to do that because they literally have the one scene together i think that's That's true
1: and i also think uh, again this film having a plot as opposed to the theatrical cut we see how these two characters connect into the plot But we don't really see how they connect into the internal journey that Matt's on. Let's take uh, The Dark Knight as a, a good example of this. One of the things that makes The Dark Knight a really effective movie is in addition to Batman being confronted with a strong external foe that he's having to overcome. That same foe and that same conflict is also challenging internal notions he has about himself and about the mission that he's on. So by overcoming that foe, it's not just a matter of clearing a hurdle. It's a matter of coming to a point where he understands in a better sense what his role in the world he's chosen is. Which is why at the end of The Dark Knight, when he chooses to take on responsibility for Harvey Dent's crimes, for what the Joker pushed Harvey Dent to do... He is in essence saying, this is the point to which I will go to defend this world that I'm trying to build. And at the beginning of the film, he didn't know that he was going to have to go that far. He thought his world was going to be easier. In Daredevil, the character's journey, his internal journey that we talked about, to get to this point beyond his own emotional isolation, has nothing to do with the conflict that he's dealing with With the Kingpin and Bullseye the, the, it's, They are two separate conflicts Each of which is Individually valid But as they are not connected His victory yep. over the Kingpin At the end doesn't have the internal Resonance that it should
0: He's essentially just on a Revenge quest against Bullseye and Kingpin Because they're the two people who are responsible For killing the two people he's ever exactly loved right. Other than are then Foggy
1: Foggy, uh, I really liked that Foggy got more to do.
0: Yeah,
2: I
1: yeah exactly.
0: He's it
2: helps a lot. Very quickly turned off by John Favreau's hamming it up acting style, and in the uh, in the lawyering scene when he repeatedly tells the jury that this that the lawyer is blind, (laughs) he says it twice in a row. He's blind, everyone. You know, he's he's blind. just encapsulated everything that drives me nuts about Jon Favreau that comes through very clearly in the Iron Man films, where I, I found myself screaming at the TV, stop putting yourself in your own movies. But... For the record, Jon Favreau, I love you. Please hire me. <laughs> it is not It is not a, a criticism of... No, it's a criticism of him. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> a criticism of him.
1: I'm sure many I, I'm, people like, like it. I just don't take to it. Yeah, I, I, I like it, because I, I think that... it... it... His scenes with Affleck in this have a different rhythm to them, mm-hmm. but I think really helps humanize what from Affleck is another yeah, not, not That's, not bad that's terms, about point, because ones. I like
2: the relationship that the two of them have. I just didn't mm-hmm. like... that It seemed unrealistic for any human to say it multiple times, as if the jury would not understand or not have understood already that he's clearly blind.
1: Here's one thing about Bullseye, and this may have been in the theatrical cut, but I didn't notice it in the theatrical cut. When he does kill Electra and runs her through, and he's holding her there on the yes. side, before he throws her away in the director's cut, he kisses her.
0: Like, gives her this really yes, that's creepy not in the, that's kiss. That's not in the theatrical cut. It's creepy that, as shit. I'm like, it's that, that, that
1: was, uh, as, as goofy and as terrible as Colin Farrell is as Bullseye throughout the film, that was actually a moment that I thought worked really well for him, because it made me hate him as a character, not just as a performer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that was a. Diff- th- there, there's a bunch of differences in that fight. I mean, for one thing, we see a lot more of the of the side going into mm-hmm. her. And in the, in the theatrical cut, like it's a shot of the back yeah. of her bustier, yeah. again getting a spike through. But this time, we actually like urgh, run through, and then very, very creepy yeah. ki- kissing what will soon be right. a corpse. But apparently not.
2: <sighs> Although I have not yeah. watched Electra, You'll I don't know see. if Electra ever goes oh, we'll into. There. Okay, we'll all right. There. Good. Does she have a Lazarus pit? You'll <laughs> see. Oh, that would be so nice. The,
1: the um, you know, the the villain side of the equation is still weak. Um, we still have. Should have brought in the Stilt Man, man or Caruthers. the Owl. The Owl. Owl Carruthers. Stilt Man Carruthers. Stilt Man Carruthers. Yeah. Um, I also think that. That's
0: the right way to phrase this.
1: I'm
2: the Scamp Man. Calling Scatman's world.
0: <laughs> we, we are on totally the wrong Scat Man right now. All <laughs> um,
2: All Scatmans are one aspect of or aspects of the one true Scat Man.
0: Every
1: time I'm getting ready to get my train of thought back in order, you can start talking about the Scat Man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the subject of Scatman, you keep saying co-ruthers. Isn't it I don't know. right two
2: syllables? Right. Uh, it's like cockroach. Right. You know, it's it's better when there's an extra syllable. Maybe I don't know. Okay, Jill just grid. so we
0: can just so we can stay on the subject of Scatman's as long as possible. Scatman, scat. excuse me.
1: Um. Seriously, next topic. So, so yeah, I, I, I think I, I think that the the villain side of the equation is still weak. I think the plot is okay. There's a stronger thematic undercurrent through the film. It, it, it's a better film. Yeah. It still got flaws, and I, I was wondering if before we started talking about the hypothetical, like what if scenario, um, was there anything else in this cut of the film that still bothered you or that you found particularly egregious that we haven't already talked about?
0: Um, like additions or just things for, that we saw in the other. I mean, cut e- that are e- as either th- either or... things
1: that were added that bugged you. Or things that were in the theatrical cut that weren't fixed
3: by the director's cut. That, that were still clearly
1: part of the director's original vision, I, but were just I bad. mean,
3: you could talk about the CGI, but I, that's also just a question of both time, money, and the time yeah. that they were in. So it's kind the of... The
1: Evanescence, hard. Affleck's yeah. highlights. Yeah. All those things you loved, Pat.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we got... I mean, the, the music video was definitely the thing that I was thinking of as being sort of the... Uh, and that goddamn stupid... Uh, organ fight.
2: <laughs> I admit, at, at, uh, by the time we reached the organ fight in the film, I had almost completely stopped watching. I think I was brushing my teeth, preparing to go do something else while the film was playing. <laughs> but I didn't have the urge to turn it off. I just wasn't as pulled into it. You just zoned out a little.
0: Well, I think, I think at that point, most of the substantial changes, other than like in the last five minutes, yeah. yeah. I feel like there aren't okay. that many. I think there's like some additional, like, cuts in the fight with, uh, Fight with There's Kingpin with and Europe maybe a the couple small changes.
3: Is, yeah. One thing that I did yeah. notice between the two cuts um, is that the the scenes that I don't know what the exact timeline on when the reshoot started happening or when they got if they got the order to change things, but it, the some of this re, the, some of the reshoot scenes, the scenes that co- directly contradicted each other, they looked different. Like they looked like they were shot mm-hmm. in different. Light and the the, the one thing that very specifically makes me think of that is um, it's the scene where uh, Foggy figures out it's Wesley. That scene is shot very chiaroscuro, very harsh lights. It's very noir, uh, mm-hmm. which is traditionally what Daredevil has always been said in. It, ever since Frank Miller took over the character in the late seventies, early eighties, yep. and compare that to some of the way the other scenes get shot, where they're they're not. It's not exactly that they're not as stylized, but they're just—they just look different. The lighting is—is is a different style of lighting. I.
0: Yeah, I mean the one that. You, you right. finish. Up. I mean the one that I'm thinking of is uh, the one where uh, Ben Urich essentially gives the info dump to uh, Daredevil in the theatrical cut. Like that seems like a—it's like a weirdly sunny scene, just because the lighting is so very different from a lot right. of movies. I think movie. there's
1: that one, and then there's also the the church scenes. I mean, throughout the the director's cut. Including the added scene, what is inside the church has a very unified aesthetic. It's very old world, very European, very, very Catholic. Mm. Um, and then the scene that is added in the theatrical cut is that confessional scene where Matt is mm-hmm. sitting inside the confessional talking to the priest. Which and that is, that is the brightest, sunniest confessional scene I have ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like it's it's an outdoor confessional. Well, it's especially
3: concerned that they. Yeah. If they did reshoots, they probably just shot that scene by seeing those two actors down with a wall in between them.
1: All right, uh, in get, get, yeah. us, get us the wall prop. Get, get me a screen! Pretty
3: much.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Dude, what do, you, what do you think? Was was there anything else that still bothered you, or anything that was added that bothered you?
2: Um, sorry, I was distracted. Uh, Patrick, you used the word chiaroscuro, chiaroscuro that yes. I had only heard in the one context before as, as the name of the uh, Vertigo comic book series uh, detail about the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I did not know that it was a, a specific painting style, so I was looking that up while you guys were talking. Sorry, uh, I'm, stu- I'm stunting I, my film degree. Uh, no, no, it's fine. I just yeah, film I, I wanted to uh, explain why I had not collected thoughts, but also explain what the word meant in case there were any, there was anyone else out there who had not heard it before. Um, apparently, it's it's the contrast of strong lights and strong darks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lighting-wise, is that did I get that correct? That's correct. Okay. Most yep. notably used in film and noir movies. Okay, uh, yeah. The Wikipedia article mostly references painting, it seems, but uh, uh, yeah. in the film context. I mean, let's see other specific anything, things I that I thought uh, should have been changed or had not been were changed that I didn't like. Uh, I guess by yeah by the probably midway through the second act, or certainly by the beginning of the third act, I was paying less attention than I had been. Uh, and so I didn't note anything at the end, uh, although I was very bothered by the the organ fight in the theatrical cut. But I would bet that if I watched it entirely in context in the director's cut, it wouldn't bother me as much because up to that point, the, the film had kind of earned my goodwill in the director's cut. I, mm-hmm. I felt like I was more capable of going with it, where by that point in the theatrical cut i wanted it to go in the trash can (laughs) uh and i I feel like i've been repeating that same sentiment uh but i i can't overstate the the irritation that i felt at that god awful theatrical cut and how it's complete absence in this version uh made this feel like a fundamentally different film
1: there is you, you you mentioned you mentioned one thing um you mentioned the act breaks one of the things that struck me about the director's cut is I thought there were very clearly delineated first, second, and third acts mm-hmm. in this film.
2: Okay. We
1: talked in the theatrical cut about how the first act seemed to drag forever.
2: Yeah, there's no exposition.
1: And then the sec-
0: yeah, it's like 15 yeah. minutes or something. And then like-
1: the, the third act was like 15 minutes. Well, um, in, in this, there's a very clear break. The first act ends. After the uh, club fight, after he sees Lisa Tazio's death, and after he shuts himself in the isolation chamber. Act 2 begins in the next scene, where he's in the coffee shop and meets Elektra. Act 2 ends when Electra's father gets killed, and he goes back to uh, his apartment and is trashing it. Act 3 begins in the next scene. Daredevil smash! Yeah, pretty much. The, the, the act structure makes much more sense. The acts are like... 35 minutes, 45 minutes, 30 minutes in this one. It's, it's much more reasonably paced. And it just, it adds to that sense of the film being more coherent.
3: And I think that to kind of build off something that Dude said was that, like we said, the, a lot of the film's flaws are still there, but, and this is really the interesting things about a lot of movies, is that when you have a more coherent whole, you're always, you, you almost seem more willing to kind of let those flaws slide because instead of instead of yeah. just kind of things that uh, I wish they hadn't done that as opposed to just building upon annoyance upon annoyance and it's just sort of a crescendo at that point so for the example the the organ scene which I don't think anyone is going to argue is the best movie.
0: So, no it's, it's still not good
1: yeah.
3: you know when you get to it in theatrical as
0: the contrarian, I will argue that I love it
3: <laughs> only never Nick the contrary change. himself
0: never change <laughs> But
1: You would argue, if if you were the only person in a room, you would
0: argue with yourself. I will kill whoever <laughs> says that they don't <laughs> like the organ scene. Flashback to five what minutes if, ago. What
2: if Nick is the only person in the room while Daredevil and, and uh, Bullseye are fighting on top of an organ in the same room?
1: I think we call that cognitive dissonance. Yes.
2: Oh. What Ooh. if I'm the only one in the room right now? There.
3: That's what we call schizophrenia. What if you're all in my mind? <laughs> the point being... That.
0: God, I hope this really exists, because this would be a really sad form of schizophrenia <laughs> to be pretending to record a podcast with people who don't exist about movies I don't like.
2: What a great podcast that would make. <laughs> no, wait. This is like Garfield without Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> but a podcast. Podcast without podcast. <laughs> Podcasting without Nick, with your host, Nick. <laughs> and the social guest Nick and Nick. Oh. <laughs> uh,
1: Nick has an oddly specific right. form of schizophrenia.
2: <laughs> I, I had a, uh, a a film kind of substance question for you guys. Mm. I find it much easier. I mean, I guess this is the point of the act structure, but that's my question: is I find it easier to follow a film when there is a sharply delineated act structure. But I also, I I don't know why that is. Is it just because that's what I'm used to? Is there something fundamental about a I three could, act structure or I a could four tell act structure? You? That, Let me, that's a good that, question. hold on.
3: Uh, Okay, I Okay, we'll call the question ended there. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I can tell you what I got taught in film school, but you know, you can kind of take that as a grain of salt whether or not. Okay. Uh, the what I was taught is this. Marine writing. Structure is important. Uh you know, eventually we'll have Lillian on and she will tell you I am a structure nut. I am But she is also too. Like we, we spent the last couple of weeks kind of obsessively checking out page counts on our on the TV episode we're working on. And the three act structure is the oldest structure, just because when you get down to it, the three act structure is beginning, middle, end. You know, which is kind of as about as, you know, basic as it okay. gets. Now I've certainly heard other theories, I've certainly seen movies that have a four act structure where the middle spoke Like Spider Man. Like Spider Man. There's five act structures. T V these days is working off of a six act structure. I think the important part isn't necessarily that you have that clean three act structure, rather that you have a clear structure. Because if you don't have a clear structure, there's no skeleton to the movie. And because I want to bring this back to the actual topic at hand, take a look at the theatrical cut. It does not have any sense of clear structure. It doesn't have a backbone in the form of a plot. It doesn't... It, it's all over the place, so you, you don't feel like you know where you're going. When you have a structure, any structure... You know, and I'm not saying there are bad structures, because there are. It helps you follow... What's going on, and you don't feel lost. You trust that the writer knows what they're talking about. You you say to the writer, "Okay, I trust you to take me on whatever journey this is. Let's see what happens." Mm-hmm. I guess
2: the the second part of my question was was more that uh, having a structure is. Uh, I would how do I put this? Uh, is it better to have your structure be clear, or kind of disguise your structure within, I don't know how to put this from from a writing standpoint, Uh, because it's something that I've been thinking about with uh, screenplays that have been kicking around in my head. Uh, How clear do you want it to be to to the audience that this is the end of Act One, and this is the beginning of Act Two? Or should they be so caught up in the story that they never even think about it, because the, the, the intricacies sort of blend the two acts, so it seems a natural progression of individual scenes, rather than, like, oh, this first part of the mo- the journey is over, and now we're moving on to in a different direction completely.
3: I, I Before we go any further, I can I can talk about that. Okay. Uh, I want to ask our ringleader, Stefan, do we want to wait to talk about that? Because we're going to get very far from talking about Daredevil, if we do. Okay, I mean, we can wait until the end. I, after I, I, we've I, yeah, I was going to say,
1: if, if, if you can like keep this Quickly on 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 point, like keep it under a couple minutes. Uh, I, I would say, as an addendum, before and Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong. I think to some extent it, it depends on the kind of audience you're trying to reach and the kind of story you're trying to tell. The most, and we've talked about this before, the strongest example of a very clearly delineated act structure I've ever seen in film is True Lies. True Lies. <laughs> <laughs>
2: True Lies.
0: <laughs> yes, which is a four act structure. Yep. With a special bonus act. Um, I am so glad that I was not the only one going, you know what, I a really clear st- act structure. True Lies. Yeah, I think that
2: was actually, you guys discussing the act structure in True Lies was one of the first instances, uh, uh, and I have not seen the film, I wasn't watching it with you when you pointed this out. I mean, I've seen the film a long time ago. I haven't seen it oh, okay. since okay. we had this conversation, is the end of that sentence. Um, was one of the first instances where I heard it discussed in a way that was like, a specific example and not just someone talking about having an act structure. Uh, so it, it was kind of one of the earliest times that I really started thinking about it in a concrete
3: way. I'm going to use a metaphor that I used when I was talking to my stepfather. My stepfather's an engineer, As a, my parents were scientists and engineers, as a side effect I use a lot of this terminology. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're building something. You need those key structural points that need to be there. Without it, mm-hmm. the, the building or bridge or what have you is going to collapse and it will be useless, people yep. might die, and we'll all be sad. Every stone in the arch is important before we right. get to the keystone. But mm-hmm. when you're, most of the time, a lot of houses, some, some buildings, you don't need to hide the rivets. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In a warehouse, no one cares. Yeah. But mm-hmm. in this fine apartment building that I'm in, they don't want the tenants to see the rivets because yeah. we won't want to live in a house placed with rivets. So depending on the movie, the point is they need to be there. I need these rivets or this ceiling is going to fall down on my head. Okay. But depending on what kind of building it is, you're going to want to cover those rivets up somehow.
2: That makes sense. If you're writing a morality play where you want the audience to come out of the film knowing, having an impression about the world, like this thing that people do every day is distinctly bad and we should all stop it as a society, you're going to create a completely different story than, I was been thinking about the nature of good and evil and here are different sides of a thing that you can make decisions about. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I mean something, and something like *True Lies* to go back to our uh, our example there. I mean that's a that is a very sort of postmodern, very self-aware movie. So the fact that it has a very uh, very self-evident act structure, I think helps support that because it's it's very obvious that it's a constructed movie. There's not necessarily that sort of like, you never believe that this is totally.
2: Yeah. yeah I, I think so perfect one of the
0: th- what there's a critical distance between you and true lies
2: one of my favorite things about true lies actually is the title because it, it seems so sort of self referential that any film that you make is obvious everything in it is going to be lies uh, and I guess I hadn't thought about it any farther than that, or I lost my train of thought because I just got a new chat message but uh um, so
1: did I. It's Patrick saying that we're off topic. Are these Sorry. lies um, lies? Well, are, or, yes. are these lies so true lies? We're not, lies. To topic. We're not off topic. We're perfect. on true
2: <laughs> lies. So,
0: so welcome, <laughs> listeners, to uh, <laughs> to the James Cameron cast. <laughs> we're going to talk like, about... Just, seriously, we need to start a podcast where we just talk about <laughs> true lies. Yeah.
2: It's, uh, it's like Macbeth. It can be cut true so many podcast. different ways. <laughs> we will, we will um, be analyzing... <laughs> Who lies we'll more? And whose lies are more true? Stepping. Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jamie Lee Curtis? Next week we'll, we'll be discussing: in. Is Jamie Lee Curtis really in this film?
1: <laughs> to to, to bring, bring it back on point, um, act structure established. <laughs> Th- thinking about the, the hypothetical of this film, it's two.
0: It's two thi- <laughs> Got really off topic. It's two, It's
1: two thousand three. Uh, Spider Man is a mega hit in the previous year. Daredevil gets butchered in the editing room. There are reshoots. We get the PG thirteen. Theatrical cut, that is not good. Uh, what happens if same context? Spider-Man's a mega hit. This, the director's cut, is the film that gets released into theaters with an R rating. I What's think, the reaction?
3: I think in terms of the the future, I don't think it's it's going to change that much because with an R rating, it's going to be a bit of a blip. Like you know, it's it's a because mm-hmm. Daredevil is such a darker hero. It's really not going to affect that much. I mean, this this film's financial problems really did nothing to affect, you know, the the, the course of things. Spider-Man Two and, is still and, going
1: and again, again, again. Let, let's let's be perfectly clear. Daredevil made a profit of about a hundred million dollars.
3: It, it, it was not a failure. It was
1: not a mega hit. Right. But it wasn't a failure.
3: Um I I wonder. I don't know. Like that's a really hard thing to say. I. It makes me wonder if we would be okay. If we'd have be if we'd have be in a world where we would be more okay with much darker superheroes, because this cut of Daredevil is maybe the darkest superhero movie Marvel has put out. It's the only one with a Punisher side. Yeah. It's, it's darker than a lot of DC comics. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that compares to it in darkness is Constantine, and Constantine still had a PG thirteen rating. Punisher, Punisher, Punisher. Thank good. you. Actually, you're right. I will yeah. I'll give you Punisher. Yeah. Um, huh. You know, but I wonder if that would have affected how things were going thus far in terms of just sort of the the '90s mar- what we what we used to be called the Vertigo and Marvel Ma- uh, Marvel Max imprints. You know, mm-hmm. you know, going going down the the road of Darky McDarkson.
2: I guess it's it's a hard question for me to really contemplate because, like, I haven't seen either cut of Elektra, and I would think of that as being the the film that would be most affected. By you know whichever version of this film the world had seen, uh, but uh, do you guys not consider like the Batman films to be very dark? I think of the dark the Christopher way. Nolan's Batman trilogy as being very dark.
1: I, I think they're 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 dark in terms of their subject matter. They're dark in terms of a lot of the themes they play to. But and the, physically, playing yeah, wise, And <laughs> the, the 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 way that this cut of Daredevil feels, it doesn't just feel dark; it feels seedy. Yeah, I mean the the driving elements of the film is whether, if we're talking about plot, is did this drug addict murder this
3: prostitute? Yeah,
2: yeah, okay, yeah, that's fair. And it, it, if he, you know, is he worth defending? Uh, yes, I feel like that's a crucial, crucial moral question about the, or, you know, that this film tries I, to, I to answer. I
3: almost wonder Same if point. for this movie to really be what we'd want it to be, for it to reach its highest levels, it would have had to have gone even seedier, like, okay. like Daredevil, especially Frank Miller's Daredevil, is, I think as we talked about in the theatrical cut version, a product of 1970s New York. And if they had, for the movie to be kind of really encapsulate that sort of Frank Miller Sin City style, it needed to kind of go full throttle and embrace the 1970s New York. Maybe not all the way out to I, the other I end really of Frank Miller, but...
1: I really like... Uh, the suggestion that Nick had during the last uh, podcast that the film would have been stronger if uh, Matt Murdock had become one of Wilson Fisk's lawyers.
0: Yes, I think that... Not necessarily had become, was, already yeah. was. And then had, had to deal
1: with... Because, uh, again, that plays to... If Fisk is a father figure for him in the context of the film... Given what oh. we know about his emotional solitude that plays to the idea of okay he that's another human connection that he's going to have to lose and will he give that up then the conflict the external conflict and the internal conflict are in alignment
0: mm-hmm. um. yeah yeah and you could have you could have him be like the corporate sellout lawyer and maybe foggy is like a down on his luck defense attorney and they like end up together
2: in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh. You could, you could have... There's all kinds of ways what you could do if, it. Uh, and I'm sorry, I did not get a chance to listen to uh, the rest of the podcast from last time that I, I didn't Damn. hear. So I didn't hear this this theory. But what if uh, ah. Matt Murdoch had become Wilson Fisk's lawyer in basically the same plot as this film, or the same world, mm-hmm. world structure, but uh, had become... Wilson Fisk's lawyer in one instance where he happened to have not committed a crime and so when he met him, his first impression mm-hmm. was that he was an honest man because mm-hmm. all of those, uh, the questions that he was being asked, he didn't have to lie about, uh, and yeah, yeah. uh yeah, that could be. Matt Murdock could have existed as a re- relatively famous and very successful lawyer, but who notably only defended the innocent and Wilson Fisk could have sought him out in this instance, uh uh, you know
0: i
1: think yeah. that would have worked
0: i think I, I think there's a lot of ways essentially essentially just something that gives you more of a connection between wilson mm-hmm. fisk and uh matt murdoch more than just yeah he killed his father like 20 years oh, yeah. ago uh just so ha- have the, have it, ha- having them have some sort of relationship and it doesn't necessarily have to be paternal but i think just in terms of sort of cliched plot uh, development, I think it works well. Yeah, but I mean, because they, they have, other, other than like the uh, water fight at the very end, <laughs> they meet once for like 10 You're, seconds. Yeah, yeah.
3: You're hearing and your villain need to talk to each other at some point, is yeah. this kind of the, how I think of it. Um, yeah.
0: And they probably exchange less than 50 words to each other okay. the entire time, because there's know, not that much talking when they first meet, and there's not that much talking in the water fight. Either
3: I, you know, I'm thinking, um, you know, we, one thing we always tend to ask, and it's one thing we didn't ask in the theatrical cut because I think we were a little overloaded from the theatrical cut. How theatrical. terrible <laughs> it was! We um, were emotionally, we always talk about physically exhausted. How is it. this? A, how does this work as an adaptation? Mm. And we, we didn't really talk a bit about that. I think I think we could say tonally, the director's cut captures the Daredevil tone a lot better than the theatrical cut, and it touches a mm. lot of what what makes Matt Murdock's um, sort of internal pain. So strong. It, it, but here's the interesting thing is that this this particular movie is capturing only one specific facet of Daredevil. That's the Frank Biller Daredevil. Yeah. There's been a lot of other mm-hmm. things that have been done with Daredevil since then, and right now Not they cho- they choose to focus on Frank, which is why he's in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And you can understand why. Frank basically brought Daredevil back to life, back before mm-hmm. he went Looney Tunes. And it is that makes it kind of interesting because they They focus that much on the way Frank Miller brought Daredevil back and brought Elektra into it and brought Bullseye into it. Well, not so much Bullseye. They don't really talk that much about what he did with Wilson Fisk in in that comic book run. Uh Because in Frank Miller's comic book run, he's the one that made Fisk Daredevil's arch nemesis. Before that, he had just been a low-level Spider-Man bad guy. Uh And he gave Fisk a backstory, a tragic Fascinating backstory and all sorts of interesting parallels between his nemesis. And they didn't have go into that there. You know, maybe they felt well, they that, didn't have that, time. That
1: again, that again put. Pl-
3: he grew
0: up in the Bronx, Leslie. You wouldn't understand. <laughs>
3: that, that again, that's his backstory. That again
1: plays to plays uh, to that idea that the villain side of the card here is woefully underdeveloped. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, we know nothing about Bullseye He's a cocky guy who has perfect aim We don't there, know why Or uh, wh- how he discovered this Or what else he could do with it Other than kill racist old ladies with peanuts There's a trope
1: in, uh, in professional wrestling uh, Of the foreign heel And uh, in Futurama They capture it perfectly In the episode <laughs> yeah. where Bender wrestles And one of his foes is the foreign I'm, the I'm not from around here <laughs> But but it's, it's, look
0: you, look at you. how crazy my passport is! <laughs> yeah,
1: you, you, you have uh, you have your hero, whoever you want to be, you know, uh, Hulk Hogan or uh, or Bret Hart, or your your stand-up guy, who you feel like you you know pretty well what that guy stands for, and you like him. And then after you run through the uh, the good villains, you have you've still got to have a match for the next pay per view, and so you bring in the foreign heel, who is generally a very large guy power wrestler from another country and the reason you're supposed to dislike him is he's not from around here. The most successful example of this would probably have been Yokozuna. Even that's a pretty weak example. So you you bring in the... uh, That's what I feel like Bullseye and Kingpin are here. They're the foreign hills. They're underdeveloped, they're big, they're threatening but they don't mean anything.
3: Here's a weird thing though, is that uh, for for, for the record, in the comics, Bullseye is American but... Uh Bullseye is very foreign in this. Kingpin is less so. But Bullseye is pretty much defined by his Irishness. Uh-huh. But that's what Matt is. Matt I is an Irish guy.
2: Top of the morning. I thought Bullseye you? was defined by his aim. His aim <laughs> I thought he was
1: defined by his poor power. performance.
0: <laughs> I thought he was defined by his bullseye. Mm. Eh hey. The weird scarification or tattoo or whatever uh, it is he has on uh, his just, DNA. To, just
2: to jump back and uh, digress again for a second, Stefan. What is the what is the name of that horrible uh, uh, Middle Eastern stereotype uh, heel? Who's doesn't he have like, like sand in his name or? Uh, well, the,
1: the, there's, the uh, Iron Sheik. the, the, the iconic, yeah, the, Iron Sheik. It, the, Iron the Sheik Iron is the one Sheik. I was looking for. Yeah. Thank you. There's also the Sheik, um, and it's, it's, again, it's a trope. There's the Sheik, there's the yeah. Iron Sheik, there's Sabu, there, there's... Okay, that's the
3: Quick only blog, one I've The Iron Sheik's before. Twitter yeah. feed yeah. is yeah. the yeah. greatest the thing ever, and you should all the read The Iron Sheik's them. Twitter <laughs> feed is pretty incredible.
2: I have a question about, uh, the, the good guys, though. Uh, as a kid, Sergeant Slaughter was on G.I. Joe, but he was also a wrestler, right? Yes. And was he a, was he a good guy in wrestling? So
1: okay, so originally he was kind of a vicious heel, like he he was a bad guy. Then okay. he became a a patriot and was a okay. good guy. Then this is the greatest wrestling twist in history. <laughs> During the first Gulf War, oh god. Sergeant Slaughter decided that America had gotten weak. So Slaughter's character became that of an Iraqi sympathizer. <laughs> hmm. Um, who would come to the ring mm-hmm. dressed in an Iraqi
2: military uniform,
1: with the Iron Sheik as his manager, going by the name Colonel Mustafa
2: at that point. So he's definitely a heel, is what you're saying? He became he was that. a heel at okay. this
1: point, point. and the, they would do like things where uh, he there were photoshops of him and Saddam Hussein at parades. Like okay. they, they went really over the top. Wow. With it. Wow. Until until the ultra American Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. uh, beat beat him at WrestleMania, at which point he became a, a beloved babyface again. Okay, but it's, uh, that 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 right. that's a, a perfect example of the foreign heel syndrome. Why do we hate Sergeant Slaughter, this legend that
2: we've loved from now on? Because he's decided he's not from around here. I always found him confusing because I knew nothing about wrestling. I I knew. A decent amount about GI Joe, but he was clearly an American figure on GI Joe. But his name was Sergeant Slaughter, which is not a hero's name. That is, to me, very clearly a villain's name because the only thing that he cares about is slaughtering people or possibly s- animals. Still, not good. Super
3: This episode. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: This is this way is all off relevant. topic. Also, Slaughter's a fair. Also, Slaughter's a fairly normal name. Like, just normal yeah. name. People have the yeah, name yeah, Slaughter, I know, but
2: like True. it's. It, when when you're creating a character whose name is going to have a tonal or moral quality, I feel like slaughter- Like Bullseye. Yes. Okay. Whatever. Uh, uh, anyway, I like the digressions when I listen to podcasts. I will, take, I will <laughs> oh, stand yeah, no, before no, my I, I See, I'm exactly. not a big
1: fan of digressions, and I want to tell you why in a 37-point
2: document.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure with these digressions, we're go- this is going to be a longer episode than yes. the first day. Yes, it, year as it, was it one. Be and this was this intended to be a short more one.
2: More to discuss. The um,
1: the 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 big point that I was like, getting at lies. with the foreign heel thing mm-hmm. is um, the foreign heel syndrome re- rears its ugly head when you have a. Hero that you love, or at least know about and care about, mm-hmm. and a villain or villains that were clearly hot shotted in to fill a space and don't have an equal amount of development.
2: But I didn't, I didn't feel that uh, Bullseye's Irishness or his foreign no, no no, 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 was I, like I'm one not, of his defining characteristics. I'm,
1: I'm not, I'm not saying at all that. Bullseye or the Kingpin are identified as villains because they're foreign. Oh, okay. What I am saying is that, like the foreign heel, they are
2: extremely underdeveloped relative to the hero against which they
1: they have to match up. I I think I got got
2: confused because I thought we were talking about that being one of his. About his terrible Irish accent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Irishness is.
0: Pretty important is to it? the character. I mean, we do we do meet we we, we we he is introduced to us in the middle of a House of Pain rap song about not being of upperclassman <laughs> with the with the refrain of top of the morning. Okay, yeah. I didn't I didn't
3: even notice well, any I mean, of the lyrics willing, in that House of to suspect Pain song. I'm The reason the character is Irish is because they cast Colin Farrell as yeah. I just assumed at that point Farrell had not right. mastered his American accent. I just assumed it was part of
2: you know the character's like. Uh, no, he's, for, he's American in the, in no, the comics. I, uh, he's actually I, I mean uh, part of the, the film version, uh, oh. part of that character's substance and not mm-hmm. you know supposed to be like a reason that you should dislike him. Oh.
1: Did you just say that Bullseye played baseball?
3: It's a long story and I'm not getting and into it. it, it.
1: Just, just top, top out in double A.
3: It's a long <laughs> story and i <I'm> <laughs> getting into it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> it. I mean, it seems like it would be, I would would be think a he perfect... He would be really yeah, good at I mean, it. That yeah, yeah. would be a, a, a natural feel to him to for him to go into that is not super villain. I mean,
0: not only not only does he have perfect uh-huh. aim, but he also is able to throw things remarkably he, fast yeah. because he hurls he hurls that uh daredevil mm-hmm. stick, which is clearly not very aerodynamic, with enough force for for like a hundred meters away mm-hmm. to embed halfway into Let that him
2: guy's chest. Yeah. He, he gives be up, a lucrative, but gives up a
0: lucrative
1: a lucrative,
0: baseball career
1: <laughs> to become a supervillain. He's just like Fidel Castro.
3: <laughs> Let me put it this way. I could not explain on <laughs> the, the origins of Bullseye and Kingpin uh, from the Daredevil comics and why they are super interesting. But I do have to meet with Lillian in 45 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay.
0: Um, okay. Well, uh, we but, won't go into that digression. Sure, I,
3: why I mean, that's not? It's relevant. I, 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 it I is relevant, that but that, your digressions uh, ran us out of time.
1: <laughs> I, do, I do think that uh, Patrick w- was on point when he said that in the grand scheme of comic book films, this might not have changed much. Here, here, here is a question that I will pose, though. In the grand scheme of Ben Affleck films, if this film had come out in its originally intended form, would it have generated, at least, not enough ill will to hmm. protect his career from the one-two-three punch of Jersey Girl Geely and paycheck? I like paycheck. That sunk him um. for years. Like, would the athlete collapse have been forestalled, and we would would we have been denied the Affleck
2: Renaissance? Do you guys hear that buzzing?
0: I don't think so. I don't think. I, I agree. I think it's no, I think I, Geely still would have sunk I, him. I, I I I mean, I think for the I think for the very simple reason that being an R-rated movie. I don't think, especially in 2004, and even now I'm not sure that an R-rated superhero movie would have enough pull that it would really have much of an effect. I think like the core like comic book fan base would appreciate this movie a whole lot more, but I don't think that that would uh, translate to much more or maybe even less revenue for a director's cut release versus a theatrical cut release, and I doubt it would have affected sort of Ben, ben Affleck overload that we had there in, like, 2003, 2004.
2: Oh, no. First of all, do you guys hear that buzzing? Is that just my headphones? That's just you. Just you. Okay. I really well, hope it's buzzing. not coming through on my mic, but um, I, this was the, the only movie from that era that I saw with Ben Affleck that I really didn't like. I never saw Jer- Jersey Girl. I obviously didn't watch Geely, and I like Paycheck. So this, on my my personal experience, would have changed my opinion of uh, Ben Affleck if I had seen this rather than the theatrical cut.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, all that said, final thoughts on the director's cut of Daredevil.
2: Um, you I can order. I feel like I can recommend it. Sure. If you have or have not seen the theatrical cut, then I would say the director's cut is yeah. worth watching. Especially if you have seen the theatrical cut, because it will probably drastically change your impression of at least the uh, what's his name, Mark Steven Johnson, uh, yep. as a as a writer and director, mm-hmm. um, as well as hopefully the the actors in the film who who gave mostly, I would say, pretty good performances, but that the theatrical cut, like, really undermined uh, the work that they did. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Mm -hmm.
0: I would say, like, in some sort of contrafactual universe where the theatrical cut never happened and I had just seen this and I wasn't able to compare it to anything else, I can imagine myself liking this about as much as I like the first X-Men movie, or the first uh, Spider-Man movie. I think, they're, I think they're fairly comparable as superhero movies that I enjoyed watching at the time, but I've probably seen enough times that I don't need to see anymore. They're good, but not great. Uh, and there was one thing that I wanted to note. Uh, I noticed while I was watching this, and this has to also be true in the theatrical cut, during the final battle, the water fight, uh, when he's not wearing his mask with his like blind... Uh, blind contact lenses and sort of the way that the water makes his hair i noticed that ben affleck looks a lot like steven dork which brings us to blue cigarettes to smoke blue cigarettes
1: blue electronic
0: cigarettes but yes he. yes yeah, but he does look a lot like steven Dorf. there's something blue. about like his eyes and his hair that way and just like his posture i'm like that looks a lot like steven dork hmm. patrick
3: yeah. um I wish I could remember how I felt when I saw the director's cut. I definitely remember liking the director's cut a lot more when I saw it. And what is weird about this particular director's cut is that, you know, back in the uh, in the heyday of DVD home market, which is pretty much gone now, they would come out with director's cuts of everything. And that's how
1: you juice the cell of the film, right? It, it was it was
3: just a way of making money. And most of the time, they really don't change anything. You get a few deleted scenes thrown in there. Sometimes you get deleted scenes that you look at and you think, oh, there's a reason that was deleted. And
0: That's often the case, I find, with special feature deleted scenes. The
3: only other film, and I hate to make this comparison, where the director's cut made such a substantial change is Blade Runner. Uh, (laughs) That's true. I have yet to watch the
2: theatrical release of that. I have. I've seen don't. the director and the, and the yeah, final don't. cut. Don't.
0: Just don't.
2: Yeah. No, yeah it's I, mean, I want to watch it yeah. just you know, to see yeah. what the differences are. Because I enjoy both the director's cut and the final cut uh, as, as kind of substantially different films for all the minor
3: changes that there are. Or the right. few yeah. minor changes. I mean, yeah. you know, from, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think this is interesting. I think this the differences are interesting because it shows you just how much you can do with editing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, what about uh, Brazil. Brazil, ah, that's ah, another, another cool one. One. Yeah. Brazil, another another one. Brazil, and yeah, those are the other. Those are the only two I can think of. I you know, it's, this is a weird blip on the Marvel canon, you know, partially because this was the time. This is before Marvel themselves started to kind of unify and make yeah. their own stuff. I mean, not that they're unif- particularly unified right now, but even then, they're more unified. The, even then, this, this. I mean, Avengers was pretty unified. You know, this, but this stuff is at this point yeah. everything's all over the place, yeah. and the. Daredevil, the theatrical cut—you can just. It, it, I don't begrudge studios existing and needing to make money because they pay my paychecks, but you can really just see the the hand of we want to make it Spider-Man again.
1: It's got to be another Spider-Man,
3: right? And yeah, yeah. I don't know how I, I feel I, about that. I guess I get frustrated with the the
2: the studio attitude that I know nothing about, so I'm just gonna you know make <laughs> stuff up essentially and act like it's true. Um, the, the attitude about making money that requires all of the money to be made up front with a film as opposed to long-term. Because I feel like if you make a really quality film that is all around good writing, uh, good direction, like, just a, a, a thoroughly good film, and I'll use The Big Lebowski as an example because I feel like that everything, there's, there's, it's unimpeachably good. Every moment of it and everything about the production is solid. Like, it clearly has, there was care taken with every aspect of it. Uh, An intention, I suppose. Uh, like that seems like it must make more money long term than uh, even like the big summer blockbusters. But I don't I know. I think
1: that there there is there is a very long discussion that we could have here about the economics of mm-hmm. film. One thing that I I will say is I think the point you just made may have been truer in two thousand three than it even is today. Okay. Because in two thousand three you did at least still have a thriving and growing home video market.
2: Through That's DVD. fair. Whereas
1: today, that market is significantly less. Yeah, it market. is declining.
2: But I would argue that it's still very relevant, at least, you know, in the, the middle of the country or, you know, not yeah. the the mo- highest echelons of uh, the economic um, yeah. brackets.
1: Again, I, I think that there's...
2: Although it, sh- it should be pointed out
0: that movies, a lot of these big movies are making most of their money yeah. abroad. Oh, that's, Especially that's now, probably yes. true. Well, Again, yeah, again
3: yeah. we could have a long discussion about this.
0: Yeah, this could go. Uh, I thought of another couple of director's cuts for that. One possible one would be Apocalypse yeah. Now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had another one, too. Which another possibility. And, and the director's cut of It's a Wonderful Life, where the town
2: rises up and kills Mr. <laughs> Potter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a very it different a cool let's
2: movie. Let's uh, go him. I own, but have never actually, have not gotten around to watching yet, the director's cut of Dark City. But I've heard that, that the the Dark absence City. of the yes. voiceover that yes, ruins Dark the plot at the beginning of the film is, that is a big uh, crucial. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, right. it's just, it is,
3: you know, even at its best, this is not a great cut, it's just, it is just interesting to look, I was I was really excited to lo- hear how you guys thought about it, because, like, you know, in much the same way, I think Nick was kind of worried that he, his hate wasn't justified, I liked the director's cut enough that I was kind of worried, you know, especially, I didn't hate Daredevil as much as you guys did. Um, I, I, thi- I was worried that I, I didn't. my memories were fogged and that this wasn't as substantially different and good as I remembered it having been. And I'm, it pleases me to know that I, I wasn't wrong. It actually is substantially different and notably better. And it is. We yeah. all support and, and you.
1: That, You're right about everything. That was actually, when I was coming into this, just to wrap up, my, my concern was when I saw that there was a director's cut of Daredevil that was 30 minutes longer. That what we were going to get was a film, the quality of Daredevil, but 30 minutes longer. Like, 30 more minutes yeah. of that film would not have been a good thing. And I, w- I was very pleased to see that it it was a fundamentally different film. Um, and uh, as Dude said, this is a film I would actually recommend people watch. Whether or not you have seen the theatrical cut... This is a, a, I wouldn't say a, a great film. I might not even say a good film, but this is an okay film. Th- there is value yeah, in this I'd film. Mm-hmm. I will say that I did notice something this time around that I'm sure was in the theatrical cut, but that pleased me to no end every time I saw it. Um, so this goes back to Nick's favorite character, Bullseye.
0: <laughs>
1: Bullseye has this absurd right. duster that he wears.
0: Is this the detail that I think it's going to be? Uh, it's, might no, be but, uh, it
1: might not okay. be, but tell me what your detail is, and then I'll tell you the same thing.
0: Well, the, maybe not his initial duster, but the duster after he demands that he gets gets a costume. Oh. Uh, it has no armpits. <laughs> what? <laughs> the armpits have been cut out from it. Like every so often, he'll, he'll like raise his hands, and there's just a, a gap Did there. I that? It's
2: very Did I strange. That? I my. my Go ahead, dude. Oh, I was just going to say that, it, I mean, the second time that I watched it, I was not paying super close attention, as I've said, but mm-hmm. uh, I remember in the first version, or in the theatrical version of the film, the he demands a costume, and yet yeah. I don't ever remember noticing his costume no, he d- later he on. Get one.
3: That bugged he me. Get one. That's bugged me since I first saw this movie. No,
2: he's in a, he's in a slightly different leather okay. duster,
0: because it's now like... It's it's like crocodile skin and it's lace up in the back okay. and it doesn't have. Yeah, I don't hits. remember that at all in the theater. It's, it. it's a very slightly in different. It's a very slightly different. the
1: thing that I loved, and this does tie into the duster, is multiple times when Bullseye he either says Bullseye or he's lurking around in shadows or yep. he's do, he's doing something, and his scene or his shot comes to an end. He exits the scene or shot, whipping his duster like a fucking Dracula.
0: Scene. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's a very theatrical figure. I mean, that's why he wants a yeah, costume. A so I'm not surprised. Particularly, I mean, I've described him as preening and a, and a peacock. If you if you if you have that kind of personality and you have a giant coat, you're probably going to whip it about when you turn
2: around dramatically. He, just, he,
3: used, he used the thing it's as just, a weapon. It's just common sense. He used the thing as a weapon.
2: Yeah, I had a couple more director's cuts to mention that I just got off of a list that I looked up online, but I don't want to make us go off topic again, so uh, I will mention it after the recording ends. Sounds good.
1: All right. So, I think that we uh, we have wrapped up. Uh, this will not be as long as our original Daredevil podcast. <laughs> it is still... By how much uh, less? Let's see. Uh, maybe by about ten minutes?
2: Okay, then I'll, I'll quickly mention okay. one of the director's cuts because it is relevant. <laughs> um, Superman 2. <II. laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, that is actually uh, a that, very relevant a one. one. Yeah. That's a big
1: one. That's a big one. Yeah, the, the Donner cut of that is a radically different and
2: much better movie. Yeah. Uh, so not too much of a digression, I hope. But, no, yeah. that's actually um, very on topic.
1: Um, yeah, and then uh, the the director's cut of uh, of Breaking Two Electric. <laughs>
2: um, has anyone seen the director's cut of Watchmen? No. Yes. Is it better? No. It's it
1: is better if you define better as more loyal to the source material. Okay. Well, well, right. let's let's phrase it differently. It's better if you define better as more of the source material.
2: Okay. Okay. All right. It's longer. All right. I mean that could be good, but I find I found most of my problems with uh, the theatrical cut of Watchmen to be uh, sort of substantial changes. Anyway. Um,
3: anyway.
1: anyway. Uh, so yes, that that is our discussion of Daredevil. Our complete exhaustion. <laughs> I think we we have spent more than uh, I think more than three. Hours talking about various versions of Daredevil. Okay,
0: you know? so three n- hours. To be fair, about a, about a half hour of this was spent talking about Scatman <laughs> or uh, True Lies
2: or act Structures or. Uh, forward I would ask that you sure. please leave in so, the act Structure conversation because I feel like if I were listening to a podcast, it would be very relevant to you know the kind of time I'm not. Hear. I'm not cutting anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, fair
0: enough. <laughs> 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 um. Well in that case, let me say, I'm the scatter. <laughs> and mouse. what
2: is what was my nickname? Batwing or something? Uh Blackwing. Blackwing. That's Blackwing. It. Blackwing, uh, Blackwing uh, Yes, Wing Crow. Uh, Blackwing cut Blackwing, runners. I mean, yeah. just,
3: just one last final thought, kind of going off of go, go, him go, being go. Blackwing and me being Stilt Man. <laughs> Daredevil has a very weird wh- roster of bad guys.
1: A terrible roster I mean, of bad guys. Because he's got
3: he's got he's got Electra, Daredevil, and uh, no, I'm sorry. He's got bullseye. Uh, bullseye and Kingpin, all of whom are kind of grounded and exist within his world. And he's got these weirdos who, who are like even Spider-Man. They're like sub-Spider-Man bad guys. Like, <laughs> he's got,
0: <laughs> yeah, no. He's he's got a, like a fourth string. Uh, these two a to, janitor to deal with.
1: He has two A-listers in Kingpin and Bullseye. Mm-hmm. He has maybe a low-tier B-lister in the Owl. Maybe a mid-tier C lister in Typhoid Mary, mm-hmm. and then a load of D listers.
3: I have no idea. Yeah, Are they're yeah, like, they're yeah, bad. All right, yeah. you, you, uh, you shouldn't know any. None
2: of this matters. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Uh, um,
0: yeah,
1: I don't know what. So, the... to...
2: okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm done. I feel like we can cut now, but. Uh
1: yeah i was just going to say to to, to close out our uh, our next conversation mm-hmm. will be the uh the promised discussion of x2 x-men united x2 the wrath of Khan
2: x2 electric boogaloo x2 yes, yes. escape from pirate's cove <laughs> x2 the legend of curly x2 Gold. high voltage x2 the secret of the ooze <laughs> x2 blood hunt <laughs> Uh, Keep going, keep going, keep going X2, Dark of the Moon (laughs) No, we're good Uh, Uh, X2's